This episode is brought to you by Audible, the number one provider of audio entertainment. Just go to audibletrial.com slash HMME for a free audiobook and a look at all of the great services Audible provides. The book I'm going to recommend with today's episode is The Devil We Know, Dealing with the New Iranian Superpower by Robert Baer. Now, the narrative in the podcast is a good deal away from the time period this book covers. However, it is still a super useful bit, and it does cover some stuff from the time period we're going to be covering with Iran in the not-too-distant future. So you can check out The Devil We Know and numerous other audiobooks, and you can get a free trial by going to audibletrial.com slash HMME. That's audibletrial.com slash HMME. Hey everyone, my name is Grant, and you are listening to the History of the Modern Middle East, Episode 9, A Damn Fool Thing in the Balkans. In the previous episode, we covered the history of the Ottoman-controlled Balkans from the economic and cultural revival of the 18th century through the early 1870s. By that time, Greece had gained independence, the Serbians had gained autonomy, the principalities of Wallachia and Moldovia unified as Romania, and the Bulgarians began to create their own national identity. But aside from Greece, most of the Balkans were still indirectly controlled by the Ottoman Empire to various degrees. Well, in this episode, we are going to cover the history of those Balkan states gaining independence and eventually triggering the Balkan Wars. In pursuance of this narrative, today's story starts where all great stories do, in Bosnia-Herzegovina. Unlike most of the Balkans, which were overwhelmingly Christian in population with a small Muslim ruling class, Bosnia and Herzegovina had a sizable Muslim population. About one in three of the population were practicing Muslims, and most of them were ethnic Slavs who spoke a mix of Serbian and Croatian. There were some Arabs and Turks among the population as Janissaries had moved into the region or relocated there from uh, former Ottoman territory fell into the hands of the Habsburgs. The Muslims of Bosnia, like elsewhere in the Ottoman Balkans, were the ruling power, and they wanted to assert their own independence from the Sultan in Constantinople, just like the Christian populations elsewhere in the Balkans. The capital found the Bosnian Muslims unhelpful in most of its military efforts. When revolution broke out in Serbia, the Bosnians didn't send aid until 1813, and shortly after that a Janissary revolt broke out in Sarajevo, making the Bosnians little help in putting down other revolts. When the Sultan abolished the Janissaries in 1826, the Bosnians put up a stubborn resistance. Issues like this continually popped up in Bosnia-Herzegovina throughout the following decades. The Bosnian Muslims wanted independence from the Ottomans just as much as the Christians in other provinces. Like much of the Balkans at this time, the biggest economic concern was agrarian reform, in that there was a desire to break up the big land holdings so that the peasantry could have their own plots of land to live as subsistence farmers. This conflict between peasants and landholders broke out in revolt in the summer of 1875, starting in Herzegovina and spreading into Bosnia. Like most revolts, it initially started over economic concerns, but would evolve into conflicts of grander ideas. The Ottomans were not the only ones concerned about the revolts in Bosnia and Herzegovina. 
The Three Emperors Alliance, consisting of the Russian, German, and Austro-Hungarian empires, consulted with each other over what to do. Despite the peoples of the region being ethnically and linguistically Slavic, the Russians deferred to the interest of the Habsburgs due to their geographic proximity to the conflict. The three powers offered a reform proposal for the region, to which the Ottomans agreed, but the rebels rejected. Other proposals were made, but none of them made all three groups happy, and by that time the revolt had spread to Bulgaria. The Grey Powers weren't the only ones with territorial and strategic interests in Bosnia and Herzegovina. Both Serbia and Montenegro had involved themselves in the affairs of the region due to ethnic and linguistic bonds between themselves. They both had sent agents into Bosnia and Herzegovina in order to organize potential partisans, and of course, Prince Nicolas of Montenegro wanted to acquire territory on the Adriatic coast, of which the two revolting regions possessed some. Under Prince Michael, Serbia had been very active in Bosnia, but after his death his successor, Prince Milan II, was more passive. Nicholas was willing to get involved in the insurrection, but Milan felt that Serbia wasn't militarily ready. However, the pressure to get involved kept growing. Officially, the Russian government was discouraging the escalation of the conflict, but private circles in Russia had other plans. Groups like the Slavic Benevolence Society and other pan-Slav groups were pouring money and volunteer manpower into the Balkans. A Russian general that had been involved in the conquest of Central Asia went to Serbia and took command of part of its military. The domestic and international pressure became too strong for Prince Milan to resist, so in July of 1876, both Serbia and Montenegro declared war on the Ottoman Empire in support of the Bosnian rebels. Prince Milan's concerns over Serbia's unpreparedness would be proven true, as they suffered several severe setbacks due to their lack of trained soldiers and officers. There was also a lot of friction between the Serbians and the Russian volunteers fighting in the Serbian army. They were faring so badly that by November the Ottomans were marching on Belgrade, at which point the Russians negotiated an armistice between the two. As the conflict progressed, the Three Emperors Alliance drew up their own plans for a post-crisis Balkans, which involved Montenegro, Serbia, and Greece receiving new territory. The Russians were to have Bessarabia returned to them from Romania, while Austria was to be given a free hand in Bosnia-Herzegovina. However, while Serbia and Montenegro were losing their war, the international community was going to rally around another revolt. The Bulgarians had risen up several times against the Ottomans in 1875, but none of them were sustained for very long. The rebellion that sparked in 1876, however, had a lot more steam behind it, and unfortunately this extra steam attracted harsher reprisals from the Ottomans. Atrocities were reported in foreign media, which turned public sympathy away from the Ottomans. In London, the conservative Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli, whose foreign policy was usually defending the Ottomans, as a means of containing Russia, became hard to defend. In St. Petersburg, the Panslavs began putting more pressure on the Tsar and his government to intervene on behalf of an Orthodox and Slavic peoples being oppressed by the Ottoman Turks. It was at this point that the Russians began serious preparations for war. However, before war would be declared, the international community moved to resolve the conflict peacefully. In December of 1876, the Great Powers met in Constantinople and drew up proposals and presented them to the Sultan's government. In response to this, the newly crowned Sultan, Abdul Hamid II, presented to the Great Powers a new constitution for the Ottoman Empire 
that he claimed would solve all the problems that the Great Powers were trying to resolve. Needless to say, the Great Powers were not convinced and the conference broke up. The Great Powers would continue their attempts to resolve the conflict peacefully through April of 1877 when the Russians officially declared war. In the lead-up to the war, the Russians prepared both materially and diplomatically. They assured the neutrality of the Habsburgs by solidifying their plans for carving up the Balkans after the war. While this was happening, the Russians also negotiated an agreement with Romania for the passage of Russian troops through their territory in order to attack the Ottomans in the Balkans. On April 24th, Russian troops crossed the Pruth River into Ottoman territory. The Russians had been apprehensive about going to war for the same reasons Prince Milan in Serbia was concerned. The Crimean War had proven to the Russian army was still behind the rest of Europe and lacked defensive infrastructure along the Black Sea coast, as well as a means of transporting troops great distances in a short time, as well as just the general issue of lesser equipment Russian soldiers had in comparison to their British and French counterparts. After that war, Tsar Alexander II initiated military reform in order to avoid the same mistakes again. However, by 1877, the planned reforms had not been completed, and they couldn't guarantee the neutrality of the other powers, with a particular concern over Great Britain. However, the British didn't intervene on behalf of the Ottomans this time around, and so the Russians had a green light. After passing through Romania, the Russians crossed the Danube in June of 1877, and won a series of quick victories. However, the Russians were halted at Pleven in modern-day northern Bulgaria, which the Ottomans managed to hold on until December. This resulted in the Russians, who had initially rejected aid from the Balkan states, to seek out their assistance. The Romanians were the first to take up the task under the command of their eager Prince Charles. The Serbians were more hesitant, especially after the only thing that prevented an Ottoman attack on Belgrade being a Russian-negotiated armistice. Despite their apprehensions, however, they would join Russia by declaring war on the Ottomans again in December. The Greek government was divided over entry into the war. They may have been orthodox like the Russians, but much of Russian foreign policy as of late seemed to be focused on Slavic unity rather than orthodox unity. They feared the creation of a large Slavic state in the Balkans that included the territories they believed were unmistakably Greek. They would invade Ottoman territory in February of 1878, but withdrew shortly after when they learned that the Russians had signed an armistice on January 31st. After the victory at Pleven, Russian troops quickly moved southward towards Constantinople, at which point the Ottomans requested peace talks. After the armistice, the Treaty of San Stefano was signed on March 3rd, which gave huge concessions to the Russians and the Balkan states. Russian diplomats tried to assure the Ottomans that the treaty was preliminary until a European-wide treaty could be made, but the Turks were unsurprisingly concerned. The other powers of Europe were very surprised and unhappy with the Treaty of San Stefano and called for another treaty to be crafted at the Congress in Berlin. Meeting in June of 1878, the Congress of Berlin resolved the conflict by granting the principalities of Montenegro, Serbia, and Romania complete independence from the Ottoman Empire. In order to resolve the Bulgarian issue, they created three Bulgarias, a northern Bulgarian principality with the same rights that the former principalities had, and a semi-autonomous province called Rumelia that would have a Christian governor appointed by the Sultan, and the territories of Macedonia and Thrace would be returned to direct Ottoman rule. 
It was assumed that Russia would be the principal foreign power dealing with the new Bulgarian principality. So Austria-Hungary was allowed to occupy and administrate Bosnia-Herzegovina as they saw fit. Montenegro would receive a strip of land giving it access to the Adriatic Sea, but it fell short of what it really wanted, that being a decent port. Serbia was also given additional territory, but it was far less than what it had desired. The Greeks got nothing out of the Treaty of Berlin itself, but it did stipulate that the Greeks should enter into separate negotiations with the Ottomans themselves in order to attain their desired territory, which they would get in 1881 with a treaty that transferred control of the region of Thessaly to Greece. Most of the powers directly involved in the conflict felt somewhat cheated by the treaty, believing that they all should have received a lot more than they did. One state that was unhappy with the treaty was the newly created Bulgarian Principality. The Principality of Bulgaria was birthed into the world with greater territorial aspirations. The Treaty of San Stefano created a very large Bulgarian state that contained most of the Ottoman Balkans not already promised to other powers. And when Bulgaria was created, they saw the borders set by San Stefano as their true borders that they would strive for. The Treaty of Berlin divided the heart of the country in two, and the young Bulgarian state would do what it saw as necessary to resolve this injustice. However, before this could be resolved, Bulgarians needed an actual government, and the Treaty of Berlin gave the Russians nine months to make one before they were required to withdraw their armies. In this time, the Russians needed to create a state that would cl be closely tied to Russia and would naturally attract the Bulgarians of Eastern Romania into its orbit. They drew up a constitution that allowed for a strong executive, which would take the form of a hereditary prince. A constitutional assembly was created to amend and or adopt the proposed constitution. The assembly was divided along conservative and liberal lines, and it just so happened that the liberals had more power in the assembly, which resulted in more power within the constitution being shifted to the legislature, which was elected by a universal manhood suffrage. By the end of this assembly, the constitution for the Bulgarians was far more liberal and representative than what was in Russia, which didn't have a legislature at all. The prince of Bulgaria would be selected by the great powers, and they chose the prince of the German state of Hesse, Alexander of Battenberg. Alexander had the benefit of being related to both the British and Russian royal families. Bulgarian politics would be tripolar, the prince, the parties, and the Russian agents. A problem that arose from this was that the Russian agents weren't in lockstep with each other. The agents in the military and diplomatic circles supported different political parties. Prince Alexander found it difficult to govern in this situation and wanted to suspend the constitution. He got the chance to do so in 1881, after Tsar Alexander II was assassinated in Russia, and succeeded by his son, Alexander III. The prince and the Tsar, although related, did not get along. Alexander III wanted to be treated like the ruler of a mighty empire to whom Bulgarians owed fealty, while Prince Alexander wanted to be treated like an equal. By this point, all ends of the Bulgarian political spectrum were getting tired of the Russians and formed a united front against them, and the prince got the support of liberals in the legislature by restoring the constitution. The great powers were also involved in the establishment of an administration for Eastern Romalia, which was to have a Christian governor. The governors appointed ended up being in favor of unification with Bulgaria, 
of which the Russians endorsed, but the Ottomans opposed. However, after the Bulgarians started turning against Russian interests, they began to oppose a merger between Eastern Rumelia and the Principality. In September of 1885, a revolt broke out in Eastern Rumelia, which managed to take over the provincial government, at which point they declared union of the two provinces. This put Prince Alexander into a tough position. On the one hand, he had promised the Russians just a month earlier that he would not pursue unification with Rumelia, and on top of that, unilateral unification of the two provinces was not allowed by the Treaty of Berlin, and would require an additional treaty to make it legal. And on the other hand, he was under pressure from the Bulgarian nationalists, whom he feared would overthrow him if he missed an opportunity to achieve their dreams of Greater Bulgaria, established in the Treaty of San Stefano. Weighing the consequences of both options, he accepted the declaration of union with Eastern Romalia. The Russians, angered by this, withdrew all of their military officers serving in the Bulgarian army, with the intent to leave Bulgaria defenseless. Serbia, which had proclaimed itself a kingdom three years earlier, saw an opportunity. The Treaty of Berlin had put Bosnia and Herzegovina under Austrian control, much to the dismay of the Serbians, who saw the region as theirs to expand into. Because of this, the Serbians were forced to look away from the Habsburg lands for their territorial aspirations. They agreed to the construction of Habsburg-controlled railways through Belgrade, from which Austrian goods would be shipped deeper into the Balkans. In 1881, the two powers signed a treaty where they both agreed to remain neutral if the other got into a war. In this agreement, they had also promised to not make a treaty with any other government without Habsburg approval, and would refuse to allow any foreign army or volunteer troops to be in their country without Habsburg approval. This move was quite unpopular in Serbia, so when the opportunity came to gain some pride by means of war, they took it. The now King Milan II, believing that Bulgaria would be weak after the withdrawal of Russian officers, declared war in November of 1885. Since the Bulgarians had lost favor of the Russians, Serbia hoped that attacking them would shift their support for a South Slavic state toward them. However, to the surprise of everyone, the Bulgarians handedly defeated the Serbians, who required the Habsburgs to come in to prevent them from losing territory. Although the Bulgarians didn't gain any material benefit they didn't already possess, their international relations were rearranged. The British and the Habsburgs initially opposed the unification of Bulgaria because they believed that they would be little more than a Russian puppet state that would give the Russians quick access to attacking the Turkish Straits, but since Alexander dared to go after his protector, the international community was willing to go along with the unification. The Russians were supremely unhappy with the situation, though. If unification was going to occur, they wanted to be the ones responsible for it, and use it as propaganda in Bulgaria for them to remain loyal to the Tsar. But now they had their own national hero, Prince Alexander, or at least they would have if it wasn't for an insane coup attempt. A group of officers in the Bulgarian army felt that their talents were neither utilized nor rewarded enough during the fight with Serbia. These officers were in contact with the Russian government, and on August 20th to 21st, 1886, they kidnapped the prince, forced him to abdicate, and escorted him out of the country. It wasn't long before a counter-revolution, led by liberal politicians, overthrew the new regime and invited Alexander back to the throne. However, Alexander bungled his return, because when he did, he wrote a telegram to the Russians saying, 
as Russia gave me my crown, I am prepared to give it back. Basically, Alexander said he was willing to make himself subservient to the Russians again, but the counter-revolutionaries were not happy with this, and then forced the prince to abdicate yet again, this time for good. As prescribed in the constitution, an assembly was called to elect a new prince. The international community hadn't even recognized the new situation in Bulgaria yet, so the assembly had to tread carefully in selecting a new leader. They ended up picking another German prince, Ferdinand of Saxe-Coburg in August of 1887. His rule was precarious the whole time, knowing that the Russians could be sponsoring another coup at any point. Ferdinand would restore normal relations with Russia in 1896, at which point his government was recognized by the international community. The last major act Bulgaria engaged in before the Balkan Wars was the revolt against the Ottomans in 1908. In response to the Young Turks Revolution, Ferdinand declared independence for Bulgaria and the Ottomans weren't really in a position to do anything about it. Let's backtrack a little bit and look at what Serbia has been up to since the crisis of the 1870s. Aside from the agreements made between themselves and the Austrians, as well as their failed war with Bulgaria, they were attempting some internal state-building of their own. Serbian politics had two main parties. The progressives, who were an offshoot of the left wing of the conservative party, and the radicals. The progressives were your typical classical liberals of Western Europe, while the radicals were more socialist in their ideology. Under the progressives, Serbia saw improved conditions for freedom of the press, education, judicial reform, and the establishment of a national bank. However, the progressives were not popular and ended up losing the legislative election to the radicals. King Milan refused to work with a radical ministry, and so the newly elected legislature was dissolved. The government attempted to confiscate firearms that were in private hands, but a rebellion had broken out in eastern Serbia in response to poor economic conditions and further spurred on by agitation from the radicals. The rebellion was put down by the Serbian army, and the progressives were restored to power in 1884. After the failed war against Bulgaria, King Milan was worried for his dynasty, as the Karadjordjevich claimant Peter was far more popular than he was. On top of this, his family life didn't look good. He, mar he had married his wife Zorka, the daughter of Prince Nicholas of Montenegro, in 1883. The two were seen quarreling in public, and it became well known that Zorka didn't approve of Milan's policies. She eventually divorced the king, and when she left Serbia in 1887, she took their only son, Alexander, the heir to the throne, with her. The situation became so dire for Milan that he called the Constitutional Assembly to draft a new constitution. The assembly was dominated by the radicals, and the new constitution rejected this. After the new constitution was finished, Milan abdicated in favor of his 13-year-old son that had been taken out of the country by his ex-wife. During the early reign of Alexander, the government was weak and dominated by the radicals. But in 1892, the radicals were replaced by the progressives. With their support and that of the army, Alexander, at the age of 16, reinstated the constitution of 1869, which gave the crown more executive power. The Radicals remained the strongest party, but Alexander became good at playing different political factions against each other. In 1901, he made changes to the Constitution which created a bicameral legislature 
that allowed him to appoint three-fifths of the upper house. Unfortunately for Alexander, he would also have family life issues that would derail his kingship. Both his mother and the former king tried to gain influence over him, but the biggest troubles came for him with his own wife. He married a widow with a scandalous reputation, who was 10 years older than him. The two of them were never able to have children, and the widow's relatives were constantly trying to gain influence within the government. In June of 1903, the military overthrew Alexander and put an end to the Obranovich dynasty. The conspirators killed the king, queen, war ministers, and the queen's relatives. Despite this event being a shock in the international press, it was popularly received in Serbia itself. The man chosen to succeed him was his father's dynastic rival from the Karadjordjevic dynasty, Peter. Peter had been educated in Paris and had close ties to Russia. This created a radical shift in the country, causing Serbia to drift away from the Habsburgs and therefore away from the Triple Alliance and towards France and Russia, and therefore towards the Entente. Peter would work with the radicals during his reign, and under their leadership, Serbia would be led into and through the Balkan Wars, as well as World War I. Now that Serbia is caught up, let's take a look at what Greece has been doing since the Congress of Berlin. The Greeks were attempting internal improvement projects in order to improve the economy. But these projects were very expensive, and there wasn't much in terms of domestic capital to be invested. They attempted to take additional Ottoman territory in 1897, but lost it in a short war that convinced some in Europe that the Ottomans could hold their own against a European country in a one-on-one -on -one fight. During this time, we see a growing rivalry between Greece and Bulgaria due to their shared interests in expanding into Thrace and Macedonia. The Greeks would catch a break in 1908 when Crete declared independence from the Ottoman Empire and then made union with Greece. The biggest political development occurred in 1909 when the army overthrew the elected portion of the government and forced a new election that would radically shift the nature of Greek politics. I would go into more detail here, but this is supposed to be a podcast about the Middle East, so I'm not going to. At least not here. I want to take a zoom out of the narrative for a little bit and look at the changing economic situation in the Balkans after the Russo-Turkish War. Agrarian reform was the biggest economic issue in the Balkans at the time of the crisis, but greater problems were on the horizon. The growing of grain and animal husbandry were the biggest industries in the Balkans at this time. There wasn't much in the way of industrialization, and unfortunately for the Balkan states, they were competing in an international market at which there were countries that were way better at doing the same things they were good at. Both the United States and the Russian Empire were major growers of grain. U.S. grain began to be sold more on the international market as railroads were built connecting east and west. And the same happened for Russia as it improved its Black Sea ports and shipping lanes that allowed wheat grown in the Ukraine to be shipped out to the rest of Europe. And so the Balkan states couldn't really compete against these two giants of agriculture. The lack of industry and cash crops resulted in very little foreign capital being invested. The lack of capital made it difficult for banks to be set up in the region, thereby making the creation of new industries even harder. Because of these limited means of economic growth, the Balkan states' main strategy for achieving greater prosperity became territorial expansion. Since territorial expansion wasn't always an option, 
some of the Balkan states resorted to internal improvement projects. However, they had to be funded by foreigners. When building railroads, foreign financiers made sure the lines went somewhere that would be financially beneficial for them, rather than beneficial for the countries the lines were being built in. These railroads would end up being mostly used to transport goods made outside the Balkans into the Balkans, and not much in terms of product going the other way. Some governments tried subsidizing industries by granting lower taxes or land to railroads and factories that floated offers to build in their countries. The biggest industry in which foreigners could make money in the Balkans was that of specialists and advisors. People from Western Europe, Russia, or the United States would go to the Balkans, offer their expertise in some field like mining, agricultural railroads, military service, or whatever, earn a living for a few years, and then leave. Between these services and low tax revenue, the Balkan states were in a constant state of growing national debts. You guys remember how the great powers of Europe forced the public debt commission on the Ottoman Empire? Well, they wouldn't be the only ones. There were public debt commissions with similar structures to those of the Ottomans throughout the entirety of the Balkans, and they are all seen as equally volatile. As the 20th century dawned, the Christian states of the Balkans eyed the remnants of the Ottoman Empire. Bulgaria declared independence in 1908, and Austria annexed Bosnia and Herzegovina that same year after the Young Turks Revolution. Following those disasters, the Ottomans got themselves into a war with the Italians, which diverted Ottoman forces southward out of the Balkans and into Anatolia and Palestine, fearing an expansion of said war outside of Libya. The Ottomans' inability to maintain control of their territory was just the signal the Balkan states were looking for to drive the Turks out of Europe once and for all. And that is where we're going to end the narrative for this episode, as we get ready to go into the Balkan Wars and finally bring the Ottoman Empire up to its entry in World War I. If you want to know more about the sources for this episode, you can check the show notes at historyofthemodernmiddleeast.com. And you can also check out the sponsor of today's episode, audibletrial.com slash HMME. Any comments, questions, or concerns can be directed at historyofthemodernmiddleeast at gmail.com or on Twitter at Grant G. Hurst or at HMME underscore podcast. And if you're willing, if you could take the time to give the podcast a rating and review on your podcasting app of choice, that would be greatly appreciated. Thanks for listening. 